Today's gathering is going to be a bit different from normal. Um, it'll be shorter than normal. If you're like my kids, when I was explaining this morning at breakfast that the service was going to be shorter than normal, they were ticked off. They were like, what's wrong? Um, not everyone's going to respond like that, I don't think. Um, I say it's going to be shorter than normal, but it's not going to be any less substantial than normal. We are really going to, in this morning's gathering, unpack how to live out just one verse of Scripture, and we're going to do that through a historic reflection on Scripture. The whole service is really a message. My sermon toward the end is going to be all of about 10 minutes, and so we're not actually going to dismiss the children to children's church this morning. It has been said that learning from the past is the best way to equip us to face the future. And so here on New Year's Sunday, I want to introduce you to one of the most influential series of Bible sermons that has ever been preached. Around 1730, a Scottish pastor named Thomas Boston preached a series of seven sermons on how to respond when God causes crooks in our lot. That means unexpected and difficult turns in the roads of our lives. We weren't expecting that crooked turn in our road, that crook in our lot. His series of sermons was titled, The Crook in the Lot. A few years after his death, he died at 56 years old, a few of Boston's close friends compiled these seven messages that he had preached he had preached the last three on a single verse in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. The, th- the last three sermons of that book, The Crook in the Lot, were based on 1 Peter 6, which you'll see on the front of your program today. All of our readings this morning will be taken from those three messages on 1 Peter 5, 6. Interestingly, Thomas Boston's book, Crook in the Lot, looks like this. It's a little tiny book. It has never gone out of print. Because he was a pastor who was known for careful and thorough biblical teaching, it is no wonder that Boston's congregation just south of Edinburgh, Scotland, grew over his 25 years as a pastor. When he took it, there were about 60 people in the congregation, and we, when God took him home, there were almost 800. God mightily used this man. Like I said, the book has never gone out of print. It's full of gold. I think the main reason it's full of gold and it's never gone out of print is because Boston, who was a lover of the Bible, was a man whom God allowed to suffer very much. He actually referred to the last 10 years of his life in his late 40s into his mid-50s. He referred to that last decade or so as the groaning part of my life. There were four major trials that afflicted him. One deeply heavy trial for him as a pastor was that his denomination started to appoint church leaders who didn't know or teach the gospel. Second, 
he began to deal with some sort of kidney stone, a, a stone in his urinary tract, a recurring condition that wreaked havoc on his health. As hard as those two were, the last two were the worst. The third trial I'll mention is that Thomas and his wife Catherine, who were married in 1700, over the first 16 years of their marriage, over the first 16 years of their marriage, lost six of their 10 children in infancy or childhood. And the fourth trial that Boston faced was the way these trials broke his wife. In 1720, one of their surviving daughters, Jane, she was 15 years old, she became very sick. And this trial of Jane's sickness shattered Catherine emotionally. From that point on, around May 1720, and continuing for the next 30 years, Catherine struggled with some kind of persistent depression, and she basically never left the house. And yet, despite these ongoing challenges, and even sometimes suicidal depression, Catherine persevered in her faith. She kept reading her Bible. She would often write in her journal about the encouragement she found there. Thomas wrote of his wife, whom he experienced very closely these trials with. He said, the Lord has at times given her remarkable visits in her prison. And he said, in that complication of trials, the Lord has been pleased to make his grace shine and shine forth in her more brightly than even before. Thomas Boston knew what it was like for God to throw unexpected curves in the road of his life. He knew what it was like as 1 Peter 5, 6 says, to humble himself under the mighty hand of God, awaiting exaltation. So the applicational question is like this. This is how we start the service. When God allows crooks in my lot, unexpected turns in the road of my life, they may be painful health, loss, broken relationships, maybe being overlooked in promotion or things like this, How do we obey 1 Peter 5, 6, the apostolic command, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? That's the question. How do we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God when he allows crooks in our lot? Today's service will answer that question in seven ways. I'm going to start by reading 1 Peter 5, 5 through 11. And then John David is going to come and read what you find on page 4. The first way we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. All right, the text, you can find it in the scripture or you can find it on page three. First Peter 5, 5 through 11. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That's the verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may at the proper time exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith 
knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, this is the great thing to be aimed at in our humbling circumstances. It involves noticing the mighty hand that has brought about everything we're experiencing, either by causing it or by permitting it. God is certainly at work to humble one and all of us. This is the time for humbling, even all of this life. Everything is beautiful in its season, and the bringing down of the Spirit is as beautiful and fitting in its time as the plowing and planting of the fields in the springtime. How do we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand? Well, first we acknowledge his sovereignty. And then, Boston said, we admit we deserve nothing. Looking to the infinite majesty of the mighty hand dealing with us, we should say with Abraham, Behold, I am but dust and ashes. And we should say, Amen, to the cry, All flesh is grass. If while we're under God's mighty hand of affliction, we try to keep thinking of ourselves as strong, our heart will swell with a sort of pride that requires a mighty hand to oppose it. But letting go of all such thoughts of our own greatness is the humbling required. Each of us needs to settle in our hearts that we need all the humbling circumstances we are put in. God brings no needless trial upon us, afflicts none but as our need requires. If at any time we cannot see that we need this humbling circumstance, we must believe it on the foundation of God's infinite wisdom, which does nothing in vain. The third way we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand is we admire in silence God's mysterious wisdom. Those in humbling circumstances must have a holy and silent admiration of the ways and plans of God. They are unsearchable. Pride in the heart imagines that we can understand everything God is doing. And so we take God into our court, imagine we know better than him, and we freely condemn him. But humility leads believers in the different direction. It leads us to stand in awe of and to respect with honor the mysteries of providence that we are not able to see through. How do we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand? We acknowledge that he's in control, he's sovereign. We admit we deserve nothing. And next, we, uh, we admire in silence his mysterious wisdom. Boston, in the fourth place, counseled that we appreciate God's mercies. We must commit to magnifying God's mercies towards us even as we experience all of the things he's doing against us. Has God laid us low? If we are appropriately humble, we will be amazed that he has laid us no lower. For however low the humble are laid, they will see that they are not yet so low as their sin deserves. We seek to appreciate God's mercies. Observe the providence of God in how he led the man Christ. 
Did not providence keep the same course with him, first humbling him, then exalting him, first bringing him to the dust of death in a course of suffering for 33 years, then exalting him to the Father's right hand in eternity of glory? This is the pattern of providence that God uses with every Christian. The Father was so well pleased with this method in the case of his own Son that it was determined to be used in the case of all the heirs of glory. Christ's exaltation ensures your exaltation out of your humbling circumstances. His humiliation was the price of your exaltation. And the, his exaltation is the full testimony that he paid the price of yours to the full. And not only does Christ's suffering secure our exaltation, but it allows him to sympathize with us in our suffering. Christ's intercession is certainly joined with the cries and prayers of the humbled in their humbling circumstances. As John David read just a minute ago, Christ's humiliation was the price paid to assure every one of his followers of our exaltation. We've been celebrating here over the last few weeks the Christmas season, the humbling of God the Son when he took on flesh, was born in order to die, to bear our suffering and to bear our punishment in our place. That is the foundation of our joy. It is a solid foundation of joy, of joy even as we grieve trials. We've been focused on 1 Peter 5, 6, where Peter counsels suffering Christians, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. As I mentioned at the outset, Boston, Thomas Boston, around 1730, pastor just south of Edinburgh in Scotland, preached three sermons on this one verse saying, how do we do this? One of the counsels that he repeatedly offered to Christians was to fix your mind on the time of exaltation that's coming. He urged Christians to think long and hard about the future exaltation that God had certainly promised to all who followed Jesus. In a word, he said, anticipate your exaltation in heaven. Now, what is heaven? According to the Bible, everyone who hears the gospel, the message about Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, become man, who lived in our place, died in our place, rose again three days later, ascended into heaven where he sits right now, ruling creation, having promised to return to reign as king of kings. That's the gospel message. Centers on Jesus. Everyone who hears the gospel of Jesus and turns from being his or her own authority and instead submits his or her life to follow Jesus will inherit heaven or eternal life. What does that actually look like? Well, the Bible unpacks at least three phases of it. The first is that if you die before Jesus returns, you will be absent from your body and present with the Lord. God promises that every Christian upon death will enter in his or her spirit 
into the presence of, of Jesus in heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. God goes on to promise that when Jesus returns, every Christian who is dead will be raised, and every Christian who's alive will be, in an instant, glorified, and all will be with the Lord forever. And then God promises that Jesus will reign forever as king of kings on earth. He will reign as king over a redeemed planet, a a creation that has been rid of all the effects of sin and death. And he will reign with all those whom he has physically glorified. That's the hope of heaven. It's what Thomas Boston called the Bible heaven. It has nothing to do with turning into an angel or getting your wings. Those are false ideas. The hope of heaven is that we will experience eternal life in resurrected, glorified bodies on earth with the King of Kings who's going to reign in an ever-increasing peace. That's heaven. And if you've not turned from being your own authority, repent, turn, call on the Lord right now to save you. Believe the gospel. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There is no better way to start the new year than by God making all things new in your life. See, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. Flee to Christ right now if you haven't. And if you have called out to Jesus to save you and you do follow him, not perfectly, But perseveringly, you get back up when you fall, then in your trials, Boston's counsel is think much about heaven. Think much about the future that God has promised you. I'm actually going to unpack eight facets, eight facets of Thomas Boston's preaching on heaven. Now, if you're taking notes, before you start feverishly writing, and getting frustrated when I advance the slide too quickly, you should know that I'm going to make these slides and the message, the whole content of the message, available in the midweek email that goes out this week. All of the slides will be on YouTube immediately after the service, and they'll be available on Sermon Audio within a day or two, so you can get all these things. I would encourage you right now, just listen. Just let the truth affect you. In your heart. The first bit of counsel that Boston gave was think much about the honor of heaven. He quoted James 1.12, blessed is the one who endures trials because after he's been tried, he'll be crowned with life. What an honor. People who expect honor can endure much suffering. You know, employees They endure rotten holiday hours because they know they'll eventually earn seniority. If you know that the trials of your life will lead to exaltation, the honor of exaltation in heaven, you'll not only endure them, you'll you'll even welcome them. Secondly, he said, think much about how disproportionate today's trials are with heaven's glory. Think about the disproportion. And he quoted 
2 Corinthians 4.17, our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Even if a trial here lasts decades, it's momentary by comparison with eternity. Even the millennia of years under which creation sits under the curse of sin and death, millennia, it's going to seem momentary in light of the weight of glory. Boston explained, I'm quoting him, there is so much unbelief that's at the root of all of our uneasiness with our humbling circumstances. If we had a clearer view of the other world to which we were going, we wouldn't make such a big deal of either the smiles or frowns we experience in this world. Third point, think much about the alternative to being humble now and exalted then. If God never humbled us, but allowed us to go on throughout our easy lives with our natural arrogance, thinking that we're strong and we're in control, what would our future be? Thomas pointed to Jeremiah 6, 29 and 30, where God utterly rejects material that refuses to be purified by fire when the fire gets hotter and hotter. He said, if a metal refuses to be purified by intensified heat, God throws it away. And Boston then pointed out, do you know that the alternative to humility now and exaltation then is pride now and destruction then? And Boston said, you either pick, as it were, heaven here or there. Fourth, think much about the sweetness of heaven. The Bible's description of heaven, according to Revelation, is a place where tears will be wiped away and where we will be at rest from all of our exhausting labors. That means that heaven will be sweeter because of our trials, because of our tears, and because of our labors. It's the same way that water tastes so much better after sweating. That health feels so much better after sickness. Or that sleep feels so much better after a hard day's work. The heaviness of our trials will actually sweeten our experience of heaven in the same way, Boston says, that the experience of the trial at the Red Sea sweetened the praise on the other side. Think much about the sweetness of heaven. Fifth, he said, think much about the path to heaven. In God's universe, humility is the path to exaltation. Israel experienced this. Jesus himself experienced it. Boston said, there is no coming to the promised land, but through the wilderness. There is no exaltation without humility. Jesus told his followers, John 16, 33, In this world, you will have tribulation. That's the path to heaven. Sixth, think much about the inevitability of exaltation for believers, the certainty of it, the fact that it will happen. Thomas 
used Ecclesiastes 3.3 to teach this. It's where Solomon explained that the creator has ordained, quote, a time to tear down and a time to build up. And Boston used illustrations from nature so powerfully. I shared just this. He said, let not the humble say, I'll never be lifted up, because there's a time fixed for it. As precisely as for the rising of the sun after the long and dark night, or the return of spring after the long and sharp winter, exaltation is inevitably going to come. In this creator's world, he will exalt those whom he humbles. And Boston goes on to say that basically any lifting up out of our trial that we might experience in this life is just a temporary and brief preview of the exaltation that we ultimately await when, as Hebrews 12.23 puts it, we join the company of the redeemed in heaven who've been made perfect. That's the exaltation, the perfect ultimate exaltation we long for. Seventh, Boston said, think much about the heart of the one leading you through sorrow to heaven. Think much about the one who's leading you through sorrow to heaven. Think much about his heart. In one of Israel's darkest moments, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, explained in Lamentations 3.32 and 33, quote, Though God causes grief, he will certainly have compassion according to his steadfast love because he doesn't delight in hurting people. He does not delight in causing sorrow. Think long and hard about his heart, what he delights in. He loves exalting the humble. Boston says the Lord, just like the moon's phases and the ocean's tides, will most certainly bring compassion after grief. Just like the moon's phases and the ocean's tides, the Lord after putting us through the darkest of trials, that we are taught to lean on him and him alone. After that, we will experience his sweetest comforts. It will happen. Think about the heart of the one who's leading you through sorrow. Finally, I've only selected eight, but this is where we'll end. Think much about the primary application of all this truth. Think much about the way that you should respond to all of these promises. In a word, wait. Just wait. When my children hear that we've got a fun trip planned for this summer, what's the primary way they respond? Just wait. Look forward to it. When we hear what God has prepared for every Christian's future, how do we respond? We wait for it. Listen to Psalm 27, 14, which is what Boston quoted when he taught on this. Psalm 27. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. See, we don't wait with despair with gloom. Truly, we may experience sadness and depression, but we are not hopeless. We're optimistic. 
we wait with strong courage. I think you can see why it was said that pastors like Thomas Boston could preach the whole Bible through a single verse. My brief summary of his teaching here in 1 Peter 5-6 refers to over a dozen passages. I just say, Christians, as we face the unknowns of the year ahead, let's do so with our minds fixed on what the Bible has revealed about the exaltation that's coming in heaven. God promises to all who follow his Son that after humiliation is exaltation. Let's pray. God, in time, your word says that you're going to shatter the proud. And in time, you're going to triumphantly lift up the humble. No matter how high the proud are right now, you're going to bring them down. And no matter how low the humble are right now, you're going to lift them up. I pray that you would help us to wait on you. And I pray that we would wait on you with hearts full of faith, full of courage. I pray that you would help us not to be full of unbelief. Help us not to ignore your promises of heaven as insignificant. I pray, God, that you would help us not to dismiss all that you've promised as as if it's like outlandish and has nothing to do with what we're going through. God, I pray that we would trust you, trust your word. And I pray that you would help us to root all of our hope in Jesus. He died and rose again, conquering death. He's the one who's promised to return for all who belong to him, all who've taken refuge in him. He's the one who has promised us eternal life and eternal inheritance in his eternal kingdom. Oh Lord, I pray that throughout the new year, throughout 2023, I pray that we all would be anchored by these promises of exaltation in heaven. I pray that we would firmly, as the writer of Hebrews says, firmly hold on to our hope till the end until you bring all of our trials to an end and we're at rest from our labors. I pray this for our good and for Jesus' glory, the one in whom we trust, the one whom we keep our eyes fixed on. I pray it in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. John David's going to come and read the final excerpt from Boston's sermons on how to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Those who submit to the trials under God's mighty hand do not give up on our responsibilities, thinking them to be too humiliating. No, a humble heart recognizes the circumstances God has placed us in and readily submits to what they require. And faithfulness to duty involves the continuing of prayer and waiting on the Lord. In its pride of heart and unsubmissiveness of spirit that makes us give up praying and waiting. But appropriate humility leads us to pray, wait, and endure resolutely, setting no time limit, even if God chooses not to lift our trial in this life. I want to dismiss us with... 
encouraging words from 2 Thessalonians 1. May God make you worthy of his calling. And may God fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are dismissed.